May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Disorders of gut-brain interaction, a new name for the most common type of problems seen in a pediatric GI clinic. What are they and how do you get better or help someone living with them live a better life? You will learn more about them in this series with one of the world's experts specializing in helping children, adolescents, and their families better understand what they are going through and then live their best life possible. Living with these disorders for many can feel like you are blindfolded and tortured for unknown reasons without any clear recourse for relief. As with the book, the blogs, and the other podcast episodes, the goal is to remove the blindfold, explain the mystery, and offer hope for healing. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. I've been a doctor for over 26 years. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine doctor, as well as a diplomat of the Board of Clinical Lipidology and Lifestyle Medicine. I try to incorporate the best of medical management and lifestyle medicine to help people live the best life possible, which applies so much for problems that fall under the umbrella of fibromyalgia and related issues. Disorders of gut-brain interaction definitely fall under that umbrella. Remember that all of the episodes as well as the book are for informational purposes only. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own individual doctor. And now on to this week's episode. All right, we have a special guest. I'm really excited for all the listeners here around the world in the United States. And her name is Dr. Beate Weinvogel, originally from the Munich area in Germany. And so excited to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us what your medical background is and what your interests are. Yes. Just briefly, I'm actually from Germany originally, and I came to the U.S. in 2013 to complete my residency at Boston Children's Hospital, where I stayed for a fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. Also did an MPH at the Harvard School of Public Health as part of the fellowship and then stayed on staff there. And my main interest within pediatric gastroenterology, of course, the reason I'm here, have been gastrointestinal disorders, or as we now call them, disorders of gut-brain interaction. And having done research in this area, but also along with Dr. Nurko, I run the Functional Abdominal Pain Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Awesome. We're so excited. There's so much overlap with fibromyalgia. Before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit of what you like to do in your free time when you're not thinking about the intestines? Yes. I think my favorite thing right now is spending time with my little daughter, but I'm also a passionate dancer and cook. So that's what keeps me busy. Cooking is so important when you're in the GI world. 
of (laughs) things. Hopefully that overlap in some really healthy cooking. So what got you into the world in the world of functional abdominal pain? And I know there's different renaming of this whole area, but what drew you into this area? Yeah. It actually goes back to residency where I worked in, this is, so I started residency in Germany and then finished it in the U.S. And I worked in a hospital where we saw a lot of pediatric GI diseases. A few years ago now, we're actually, there was a much less known about these disorders than we know now. And I would find myself discharging patients after they had normal endoscopies, but they had pain. And I was the one to discharge them. And the parents would ask me, why does my child have pain? And I always found that very frustrating and intriguing and really wanted to learn more about it and why that is. And 10, 15 years later, here I am working with these patients. And it's fascinating how much this field is evolving and how much more we're actually understanding. Oh, that's so exciting. It's similar to my story. I just had a recent episode post that said either all of this is your big hypochondriac or there's something with how your brain is processing. And we talk about the gut brain. It's either one of the two. And that was an unsettling thing to have to share with the families who, when their child is in often very severe pain and you had a passion to help them. I'm guessing you felt they deserved more than just, you're fine. The test is normal. Good. There's no ulcer. You don't have celiac disease. You don't have cancer. You should be happy. Yeah. It's the one time that we let families are not happy with normal findings with these disorders, but we'll get more into that, which is, I think, one of the key things here. We are talking about the topic of chronic abdominal pain issues that are not caused by conditions like cancer or infection. These are conditions lasting more than a couple months without any red flags or other symptoms. For the average community, pediatrician, family practice doctor, parent, or patient listening, how common are these conditions compared to those cancer and infections, especially when somebody's coming into a a GI specialist, a pediatric specialist? So very common, even for, and I would add compared to cancer infection, like those are pretty rare. Infections, usually more acute pain. Cancer is obviously pediatric, very rare, but also other conditions like celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, other organic diseases that we see within GI. And indeed, these disorders of gut-brain interaction or functional abdominal pain disorders are recurrent chronic GI symptoms, pain, diarrhea, nausea, bloating, all of those in the absence of any disturbances, physiologic disturbances that we can find on routine testing, right, is sort of how I would define them. And they're very common. It, studies have shown 2 to 4% of pediatric visits, it probably seems a lot more to those that are listening. Some studies have shown that about 8 to 18% of school-aged children meet criteria for one of these disorders. So that's almost about fourth. So that's a lot. And studies around the world, right, it's not just in our Western world, but worldwide, the pool prevalence is around 13 to 14%. So it's pretty common. And that's just walking into a pediatrician's office for somebody coming to a pediatric gastroenterology clinic. What percent of that population would you guess? I would say it dominates our practice. Yeah. Without having an exact percentage, but it's very common. Yeah. And of course, the patients that we see are just the tip of the iceberg that require the referral in the primary care practices or even patients going to school with chronic symptoms that don't even come to medical attention. That's where the sort of the 18% come from. But yeah, it's very common. Yeah, I think that's important to know for all the parents and all the patients out there who are going through this is that this is actually common. And so when you get 
a diagnosis like this is not an exception. It's more the rule. When you're getting workup, what are some things that we want to make sure, symptoms-wise and physical exam findings, that we want to make sure before we jump to the gut-brain interaction disorders, even if mom had a history of migraines and dad had irritable bowel syndrome that now Susie at age 10 is having classic, what would we want to make sure we're not missing? What are the symptoms and signs? Yeah, I will get to that in one second. Let me just maybe explain briefly how we actually diagnose these disorders because I think that it goes along with what we have to rule out or think about. Unfortunately, disorders of gut-brain interaction tend to be labeled as disorders of or diagnoses of exclusion, that we have to rule out all these other things and then we can give the diagnosis. And that's actually not quite right. (laughs) If somebody presents with certain symptoms and we have a true diagnostic criteria that experts have come together to develop for these disorders, they're called the Rome 4 criteria, that they're currently working on another iteration. But And so if you meet those criteria, you have that disorder. And these disorders, right, so just to put a name on what we're talking about, different types of disorders of gut-brain interaction are irritable bowel syndrome, as some examples, functional dyspepsia, functional abdominal pain, and then others, abdominal migraines, nausea, as I just mentioned, constipation, functional constipation, and a few others. But those are just some of the more common ones. And so if you meet the criteria for these, you can be diagnosed with this disorder. You don't actually need to do a lot of testing. That being said, a lot of patients get a lot of testing because we're always trying to look for that holy grail, that one thing that explains the diagnosis, that explains the symptoms. And so when we make the diagnosis, of course, we have to take a thorough history and do a thorough exam. And the kinds of things that we want to really pay attention to, to make sure that we don't need to do further workup, because in some cases we do, right, are things like a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, of celiac disease, peptic ulcer disease in the family, if there's persistent localized pain, like right quadrant, especially right lower quadrant, if there's any issues with weight loss, obviously involuntary weight loss, if there's any issues with linear growth, right? If there's nocturnal symptoms, though you can have nocturnal symptoms with the disorders of gut-brain interaction, if there's any perianal disease, abscesses, fistulase, things like that, delayed in puberty, fevers, arthritis, right? Those are the kinds of things, obviously, that would want us to look a little bit further. Also, dysphagia or dynophagia, so trouble swallowing or painful swallowing as some other things to pay attention to. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Yeah, and the tricky thing, and can get into it a little bit more later too, is that a lot of times people who have an inflammatory bowel disease I think it's 40% also can have a functional yeah. bowel, which even makes it trickier, right? Where yes. it makes it challenging. And that's actually a very important point that you bring up is that, and also, right, goes along with the fact that if you meet criteria, you have the diagnosis, but you can have something else. And we have patients that have celiac disease. Celiac disease is well controlled, is perfectly treated, and they still have symptoms, right? Same with inflammatory bowel disease. And yes, it makes it tricky at times for sure. So we learned about the red flags and we learned about some of the names, but over the years, these central pain processing disorders and the podcast called fibromyalgia, but under the umbrella are things like migraines and chronic pain issues. And we're talking about chronic abdominal pain. What are the 
changes in names that we've had over the years, especially for a doctor like myself, who has been a doctor for over 26 years and what we used to call things in the past and what you often may find on the internet. It may be confusing, but can you review some of those changes over time? Yes. So from recurrent abdominal pain disorders to functional abdominal pain disorders, but most recently really functional gastrointestinal disorders is is what the correct terminology was. But now most recently has changed to disorders of gut-brain interaction. And that's an attestation to the fact that we're understanding now so much more about what is actually involved in these pain conditions and that it really is the gut and the brain and the communication between the two and that we have to really address all of that to understand and treat the pain. You've lived through some really incredible changes during your time, med school residency. What have we learned that we didn't quite fully appreciate when you were in medical school and medical residency and that we've learned and grown in our understanding. Yeah, so a lot. I'm going to focus on some of the most fascinating things that I think we've learned. But to preface, right, that what we know about disorders of gut-brain interaction and how they work in a way is we really have to understand them in the context of what we call the biopsychosocial model, right? So it's not like the medical model, which our medical system is really good at, that we say, okay, you have appendicitis, right lower quadrant pain, appendicitis, take the appendix out, you're fine. That's the medical model. The biopsychosocial model basically means that you are a human being that lives in a world and everything about that world, where you came from, where you're going and what you're interacting with all the time, all that matters and all that affects how you experience pain. And we'll talk more about that. But when you think of pain in that way, and when I say pain in the GI world, and also things like chronic nausea, even vomiting, like also chronic gastrointestinal symptoms, but we're talking mostly about pain and pain is the predominant symptom in a lot of these disorders. So I'm going to be saying pain. But one of the things that we've learned are how certain patients become vulnerable to experience pain. And a lot of research has been done in the development of the pain circuits and the pain system, the neuro circuits of pain and how they evolve from six weeks gestational age until for a long time after we're born, but that it's really fully developed shortly after babies are born. But anything that happens along the maturation of a baby, young child, it can affect how that processing works, how the signaling works, and can set them up to more likely to develop chronic pain, where pain itself is the disease, not the symptom of an underlying disorder later on in life. And why there's a delay that if you have early life sort of adverse events, and that can be infections, it can be surgery, it can be lots of interventions in a NICU, things like that, why you are only really prone then to develop some of these chronic pain disorders later on, like usually we'll say in the teenage years, young adulthood is not entirely clear, but it probably has something to do about changes, maturation, changes over time. We don't know that, but that's something that's, I think we all know is what we see, right? So how these early life events can adversely affect the development of the nervous system and disrupt the gut brain axis in a way and predispose to pain is something that I find very fascinating and shows that we have vulnerability factors. But that being said, not everybody that experiences something in early childhood will go on to develop a chronic pain condition like a disorder of gut-brain interaction. And I'm going to abbreviate it as DGBI because that's much easier than saying the whole thing. And so there are other factors. And those other factors are environmental 
triggers certain other ways that may affect how we experience pain, right? If we have trouble sleeping, if we're anxious, if we're depressed, it like it opens up the mind to let pain signals come into the brain even more and experience them even more. We also see that patients that have vulnerability factors, about two thirds of patients, they tell us, I know exactly what happened when my DGBI symptoms started, right? Most commonly, I think what we all know are infections, with COVID now, it took on a whole other level because that also triggered a lot of not just GI symptoms, but chronic fatigue and other things like that. So the same is for a DGBI can also be triggered by infections. But we've also seen a lot of patients that started having symptoms after a concussion, after a surgery, after a sports injury, sometimes even after the, the diagnosis of an if you want to call it organic disease, right? Crohn's disease or celiac disease, that disease is treated and they still have pain. And then stressful events in life can precipitate it. So different trigger, not just infections. And so that's something that we've shown. The other thing that I think has changed the field significantly is learning that this pain is real. And I think that's where a lot of patients feel misunderstood. And I also see that a lot of physicians and colleagues it also still don't fully fathom that this is true, real pain, just because there's no underlying disease that gets unraveled or unveiled or diagnosed that explains the pain, the pain is still real. And that's where studies, functional MRI studies have shown that the pain signals, that parts of the brain where pain is experienced light up, you are experiencing pain. And also studies that have in the GI world have shown, right, the sort of proven in a way the concept of visceral hypersensitivity, right? That in patients that have DGBI, we are more like to describe it as having a sunburn on the inside, right? So if your skin is sunburned and you touch the skin, it's going to hurt a lot sooner than if you don't have a sunburn, you can bang your skin and then it might hurt. And similarly in the GI tract, if you have that hypersensitivity, if the intestines stretch just a little bit, distend just a little bit, you might have pain that's out of proportion if you have a DGBI, right? That's what visceral hypersensitivity is. If you don't have a DGBI, like IBS, for example, the colon might stretch significantly and you might feel bloated, but you don't really have pain. So that's the big difference. And they've actually done these with barostat balloons in the rectum. They've done these studies that show that patients with IBS, with irritable bowel syndrome, have a much lower threshold to experience pain and having actually studied this concept of visceral hypersensitivity. So I could go on and on, but those are some of the very interesting studies that I think bring this concept a little bit, make it more tangible. A lot has been covered so far in today's episode. I want to review some key points and then delve a little deeper into some areas as well. The new name for this category are disorders of gut-brain interaction, and they involve problems in hypersensitivity at the gut level as well as perception at the brain and spinal cord level. There are many common Disorders that fall under this umbrella, common ones that you've heard of, include gastroesophageal reflux disease. What is gastroesophageal reflux disease? Well, you have excessive acid going into the esophagus. Now, the interesting findings are that you can have two different people who have the same amount of acid that washes into the esophagus, yet have completely different experiences of pain or discomfort with those. How is that found? 
Well, when they do studies where they put a pH probe into the intestines and then over a 24-hour period and measure the amount of acid in the intestines, they will find that there are people who have very little acid washing up but experience a lot of pain. And then there can be people who have lots of acid washing up into the esophagus and throat, yet they don't experience much pain. And maybe their symptom may be just a cough. That's why one of the common causes of a chronic cough is actually acid reflux. The people who have less pain will not have pain, but they will have a cough. That is something that is noticed in newborns. In pediatrics, we will call them the happy spitter-uppers and then the very unhappy spitter-uppers. Infants who tend to be on the more colicky or hypersensitive spectrum will have acid reflux and be very uncomfortable and crying and fussing and much harder to console. And then there are babies who will be spitting up and smiling right after and having no major distress. Both of those babies have the same amount of acid reflux, but one is much more sensitive. So even at an early age in an infant, you can start seeing this hypersensitivity. One of the most common problems seen in both the pediatric and the adult world is functional dyspepsia. What is functional dyspepsia? Functional dyspepsia symptoms are overlapping with symptoms of ulcers. There may be indigestion in the upper intestinal area, bloating often triggered by certain foods or just foods or eating in general. And you may have no other warning signs. You don't have blood in your stool or black tarry stools. You don't have any unintentional weight loss, but you have a lot of discomfort. And it's typically chronic. And it also involves this hypersensitivity to both distension of the stomach and upper intestines, as well as hypersensitivity within the central nervous system. Another common disorder of gut-brain interaction include abdominal migraines. Abdominal migraines are episodic in nature, similar to migraines, but they tend to have much more gastrointestinal symptoms with abdominal pain more than headaches, but typically there is some level of headache that's often found, but the common complaint or primary complaint will be abdominal pain. There's usually nausea and sometimes vomiting associated with it, and there also is a lot of decrease in energy. They often are visually pale or look like they're run down and just want to lay in bed. They often report a lot of light and sound sensitivity with this as well. Similar to general migraines, they often run in families. As children go into puberty, it tends to migrate more into the classic adult migraines where it's much more headache predominant with some nausea and vomiting, although it's not unheard of to have this persist into your 20s. As we talk more in this series with the biopsychosocial or mind-body-spirit model, there often are triggers associated with this. A lot of history of other issues like anxiety, ADHD, depression-type symptoms associated with these disorders, and a lot of times stress, whether that's psychological stress or physical stress or 
nutritional stress that can be a factor. Lifestyle plays a very important role with sleep, both regular sleep schedule as well as sleep disorders that can play a role, as well as exercise, both level of exercise and consistency of exercise. The next category that we often see under the disorders of gut-brain interaction include irritable bowel syndrome. We will talk more about that in this series as well, but there is generally lower abdominal pain that is intermittent, usually associated with change in the bowels, either having constipation or diarrhea, and also a change in the symptoms after having a bowel movement compared to how you feel before. This is where we will end this week's episode. We are going to have two more episodes where we talk with Dr. Beate Beinvogel, who is giving us a lot of great insights into understanding this very perplexing problem. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating, review, and share with others. That way, more people can grow in their understanding. Also, if you have any questions or topics that you would like to be covered on future episodes, please email me at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Until next week, go Team Fibro.